Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Adil Khan. Adil was one of the founding team of Boxwood, the business transformation consultancy, which following years of successful growth was acquired by KPMG in 2015. Since leaving Boxwood, Adil now spends his time advising consulting entrepreneurs on how to successfully grow their businesses and focusing on his own startup, LifeFile. The goal of LifeFile is to provide people with a simple, organized platform for their life admin to give them the freedom to unlock their potential and thrive. If you want to find out more about LifeFile, you can check out their website, which is www.lifefile.com. Adil's story is rather different to what you might consider the typical journey of a consulting entrepreneur. Unlike most, he didn't have a long track record in consulting, having only spent a short time in the industry before stepping out to found Boxwood with his co-founders, who had spent equally little time in consulting. This limited time in the industry proved to be the key to their success, as they set out to create something very different from the typical consulting model that was common at the time. We go into detail on some really key parts of the Boxwood journey that I know you're going to find hugely interesting, including the importance of culture and how Adel and his co-founders defined their culture from the start and what they did to ensure it remained a core focus as they grew the business. 
The challenges of being responsible for both the people and finance aspects of the business, as Adel was, the natural tensions that these functions come up against, and how Adel managed this. The Boxwood approach to working with clients, why this was so unique, and what many consulting firms and consultants in today's market could learn from it. And finally, Adel's contrarian view on building a consulting business to sell, why expanding internationally can actually reduce the value of your consulting business if you're looking to sell it, and the ultimate sale of Boxwood to KPMG, something that I know a number of you have asked to hear more about in interviews like this one. I really enjoyed this conversation, and it was great to get the perspective of someone who took a less orthodox route to success at consulting. If you are not from the typical big four background and want to know how you can turn this to your advantage, or even if you are and you want to know how you can use the principles that Adel talks about in today's episode and the principles that were so successful for Boxwood to grow your own business or your own practice, I know you're going to get a ton from today's interview. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Adel Khan. Hi there, Adel. Welcome to the show. Hello, Nick. So great to have you on and really looking forward to talking to you and finding out all about Boxwood. It's something I actually I didn't mention before in the intro, but during my time in consulting, there were a number of firms I was I was looking at career moves. And I do always remember seeing Boxwood and the website, and it really grabbed me, how you approach when you ran it, how you approach client problems and the culture. And I know we'll dig into particularly the culture today. For those who maybe don't know you as well, it'd be great to just start with your background and how you got to where you are today. Certainly, of course. Well, quite relieved that you were familiar with Boxwood way back then, <laughs> because we've always used to give ourselves a tough time about not being uh, marketing as much as we should. But we were quite well known in the market for mostly for our culture, but we'll come back to that later. A bit about me first. I met the team and I was working with the team right after having completed my MBA mm -hmm. at Durham. And quite a few of us were working together for a different group. And we felt there was an opportunity in the market. We all came from very different backgrounds, but values and culture were very similar, at which point I decided it was, along with, of course, the other co-founders, to set up Oxford. I actually came from a banking background, which was fascinating because I kept telling people, I'm a people person, that's what I want to do. And everyone was looking at me and saying, no, you're a banker and you need to take care of financial services, which was quite fascinating, actually. But when we teamed up, uh, my focus was actually building the people team and bringing in the right people. Fascinating. And we'll come on to that. Or maybe maybe we start there, actually, is... Am I right then, so you mentioned you were a banker before your MBA. So am I right, you'd come out and were doing some consulting work, but you didn't have, I guess you'd call it the traditional five, 10 years in a, in a big four. That's quite an interesting place to be. And the reason I say that is I have many listeners who aspire to start their own consulting firms and, and do something of that ilk. But often there is the, the experience question, the, you know, do I know enough people? Have I got enough client projects under my belt? In those early days when it was you and your, your co-founders, did you have any of those conversations? And if so, how did you or your co-founders help you overcome those concerns of whether you, you had enough experience to be doing this? Well, I like the question because 
this was one of the things that differentiated Boxwood. Mm. Firstly, this may surprise you, most of the co-founders weren't coming from a consulting background. We had people from the military, the Navy, FMCG, corporate backgrounds, myself with investment banking background. We all came from different areas of life and not specifically consulting. But that's how we could see the opportunity in the market. Firstly, we could see that there was a need for something different, something which was more results focused, something which brought in more of an implementation focus. But we weren't daunted by the fact that most of us did not come from consulting backgrounds. There was one individual in the team who came from one of the big four, Mm. But that was it. But we all brought in different ideas to the table, very different backgrounds. But the one thing we were clear about was we all had the right set of values and were like-minded and were willing to go on that crazy roller coaster journey together. Mm. How did you find each other? I'll sort of share with you. I, obviously, I know you and we met through Ollie at Q5, a former guest of this show. So I know less about the other co-founders in the in the journey. How did you find each other and and actually go through those steps of deciding, to your point, you all had shared values, and then actually so much so you wanted to create a business that ultimately turned into a consulting firm that was Boxwood? How did that sort of chain of events come about? So essentially, we were all working together for a different group and doing similar stuff. Everyone was quite early on in their consulting journey, mm. very early on in their consulting journeys. Uh, they were all very experienced individuals in their own right, based on whichever sector or industry they were coming from. But from a consulting journey perspective, it was quite early stage. At which point, whilst we were working for the different group, we could tell when we used to sit down and talk about clients, about opportunities, about the market, about the type of people we used to recruit and should be recruiting, we felt that starting with a clean slate, setting up something with and establishing the culture from day one was hugely exciting and not daunting, purely because a lot of us came from industry. Mm. And we saw that as a unique differentiator in itself. And to that point around setting up, because it's something, and I, I know when we spoke before this, we talked a lot about this story of Boxwood, where it where it went, and we'll, we'll sort of build towards that o over today. Actually, the sale has ultimately occurred. It's something that I know you've spoken about before, and, and there is a difference between the building a consulting firm to grow versus building a consulting firm with a goal of sale or at least an option for sale. Is that something you, you set out early on in the journey? And if so, what did you put in place or what do people need to put in place to actually do that the right way? It may surprise you, and I think the market has changed and times are changing, but we never set out to build a company and sell it. Mm -hmm. That was definitely not the vision that we established for ourselves or the mission. The vision was to do something exceptional, extraordinary for our clients, set up a consultancy which would be welcomed in by CEOs, ambitious, audacious CEOs and their leadership teams would welcome us in to partner with them, to work with them shoulder to shoulder, to deliver results in a transformational setting. 
And in those days, I have to say, you, you didn't use the word transformation. It was essentially improvement. It was more about growth, actually. We were bringing a growth proposition to the market. And by proposition, essentially, we were saying, we'll help you grow your top line and your bottom line mm. in a very sustainable manner with a core focus on enhancing the capability of your team. But we never set out to actually say, let's build a company and let's sell it in a couple of years. That was not the ambition. The ambition was to actually grow a really exceptional company with a truly differentiated culture, with people who were like-minded, people who were humble, but exceptional in their own right, in terms of the lengths to which they would go to deliver results for their clients, coach their clients, coach their own teams and their own colleagues. That was the ambition. That was the aspiration. And importantly, have fun on the journey and, and be able to laugh at yourself. Well, maybe we, we start there then, because like you say, the sale was something that came later. But throughout that, and I, I get the sense from sort of even this far into our conversation, that cultural side is a really big piece for you was a, a huge component to what you set out to achieve with Boxwood. My sense is implicitly, though, from the way you describe it, and it may have come over time, is you had quite a clear, you and the co-founders set out with a clear mission of what you wanted to create, which was very much culture-driven. And I think you know we, we talked about build to sell is something some some entrepreneurs focus on, but equally getting the culture right is another another core focus and something that a number of my guests have talked about. How did you, in those early days, get a culture that you were all happy with, or at least begin those conversations? Because very often conversations like that can be people feel they implicitly understand, but when actually you start to codify, you realize people have very different drivers. How did you, when you and the founding team were looking to set up Boxwood, actually start those conversations so you all knew you were going down the right road together? So for, for starters, Nick, we knew that if we didn't establish the right culture, we didn't have a start, uh, chance to actually achieve our aspiration mm. and our ambition. And it was really helped by the fact that people were coming from such different industries and sectors. When we all used to sit together, it was less about the destination. What was more important was get the right people working together, get them on the bus, and we didn't, we weren't, you know, 15 years ago now, if you had asked us where we were going, we wouldn't be able to have answered that question mm. succinctly. But we knew that if you'd get the right people on the bus with the right values, all aligned to a clear vision, the bus would head in the right direction. Mm. Of course, it's not linear. Of course, there are so many ups and downs along the way, so many. And then there are sessions and all sorts of mm. stuff happens. And you you make mistakes along the way, which is part of your learning. And I'm sure, we, in fact, I know we made loads of mistakes along the way, which was good learning for us, mm. sometimes painful learning. But get the right people on the bus and you're pretty much guaranteed or the chances of being successful are far higher. And that's what we were out to achieve, is make sure, even where our recruitment was concerned, bring in people, and this is going back to your culture question, how did you establish the right culture and how did you nurture that culture and build that culture? Because culture was a key differentiator 
for us, we actually recruited looking for people who were a good fit in the team, in the company. And we didn't go out. Of course, capability was absolutely essential, but it was a hygiene factor. You would go out looking for specific capabilities, specific practice areas, specific sector expertise. But the first thing that we ever actually really tried to assess and understand was the individual's culture, their values, their background, what were they bringing we would go to the market and, of course, we would recruit for capability in the form of sector, practice, industry experience. But most importantly, and especially when we first met the individuals, our only question was, would they be a good fit here? Would they be a good match here? Would they feel at home here? And would they care as deeply for our clients as we do? So once we set out to establish a culture, we were very clear that one, we were out to build something which was truly authentically differentiated from other consulting firms, a company which cared as much for the clients as they did themselves. And a lot of the feedback we got from our clients and their teams over the years was, we can't believe that your people actually care more about our business sometimes than our own people, which is always good to hear. But it's important to talk about culture as you set up the company and as you grow the company. It's a dialogue which needs to be continuously nurtured. And one of the things we were quite good at, especially Chris and the rest of the leadership team, was role modeling the right behaviors, the mm. right set of values. And we were quite good at actually telling each other off when we ever went off piste, where culture was concerned. But it's reinforcing. And each time you actually recruit another person with the right set of values, you're actually reinforcing that culture. And that's how we continued even during the tougher years. We just made sure we reminded ourselves that culture was really key for us and we needed to continue to enrich it and, and focus on it. And how do you, because I think we, we'll come back to actually the early conversations around culture and things like holding each other to account. How do you balance what I assume is attention, and you can tell me if it is or isn't, of hiring people who fit with the values while hiring a diverse range of consultants, be it from background, be it from industries, be it from whatever category of diversity you're focused on. And the reason I ask that is I think there is a potential danger. If you are looking to hire people who embody your values, let's say, or the firm's values, that you can end up hiring people who are all the same, should we say. How did you manage, I guess, say, was that a challenge for yourself and the leadership team at Boxwood? And if so, how did you manage it to hire a, a diverse team that could then help you grow the firm and help your clients? I really like that question because it's probably something we, which was a challenge for us. When you set out your stall and you talk about the fact that you're results focused and you're going to deliver results, real, tangible, sustainable results for your clients working in joint teams, you have to bring in people who know their stuff number one, are quite humble, number two, but at the same time are quite assertive 
and are comfortable having challenging conversations with very senior clients and their teams in a manner where the clients will embrace those conversations and be willing to be challenged in that manner and willing to actually work in an uncomfortable zone for a period of time for them to actually stretch themselves and say, yes, we do need to make certain changes within the business. This was really tricky for us because there was a natural bias to bring in extroverted people, people who weren't worried about putting themselves out, weren't worried about having challenging conversations. They were, they were characters, real characters, real personalities with a lot of capability, but typically quite challenging people. Mm. They had challenge in the, through and through in their DNA. So, of course, there was always a bias to bring in this mold of person. And a few years in, we realized that that was fantastic and we needed it because you, because our store was set out for implementation, delivering tangible results, working all the way from the boardroom to the shop floor. But we also realized that it was holding us back to an, to an extent because you also need the introverts almost as much as the extroverts, even if you have an implementation stall set out, because there's a lot of thinking, there's a lot of raw horsepower required, etc. And this is, this is a tricky subject, and I don't mind discussing it, because mm. we're talking about recruiting people, and we're suddenly, I, I don't mean to generalize, extroverts versus introverts and how they work it's more about how they work and mm. environments within which they're comfortable but we were more extrovert heavy over the years and we had to actually almost sort that balance out as we grew as we matured as a firm our thinking was more mature our approach was more mature we balanced it out over the years but it was tricky and how did you, you mentioned you, you started extrovert and then at some point realized you needed to rebalance that, let's say. Actually, how did you approach that? How was it that you, was it a conversation in passing? Was it a regular dialogue that led you to say, actually, we need to look at this? What was it that through the way you ran the firm, let you identify that was a problem so that you could solve it? It was one of the things, and this was very much a part of our culture, was we met a lot as a team, as a leadership team. We met a lot as a company. We had a lot of away days. We had a lot of strategy days. We, had, we met once a month to share knowledge, to share lessons learned, to share challenges we were facing and how, you know, the entire company contributed to providing solutions to challenges, other challenges, uh, naughty problems that we were trying to solve on client sites or naughty problems that you were trying to solve internally. And one of the things about our culture was we always asked for client-facing standards for any work which was due either for a client, an external client, or an internal client. And I think that was really useful over the years where we said all internal work must be client-facing standard because we're as important from, you know, it's a good training ground when you're doing stuff internally as well, uh, but you must maintain the highest of standards because it will eventually impact the, 
external clients. Yeah. But it was through conversation and dialogue, challenging conversations and dialogue. So when we would challenge each other, or if I was challenged, why don't we have that capability set? Or why is it so difficult to recruit for X capability set? And I would have to turn around and say, actually, we typically screen that capability set out or that type of personality out because that's how we've traditionally built our model and what we tend to, you know, we used to have fantastic selection days full of energy, full of bounds, full of challenge. They were really energetic for those candidates coming and attending the recruitment days. They get a real flavor of our company, our culture, how we work, how we challenge each other. But that that would also scare the wits out of some people um, uh, who who would who found that incredibly uncomfortable. And in a sense, you're almost filtering those people out. Yeah, almost implicitly, I Implic- guess, by the way you structure it. Correct. Yeah, correct. And we had to modify that over the years, which was which was a good learning for us, even though we still very much stayed implementation results focused. The second part of, and again, this might be a second part, it might not, of that challenge is, like you say, when, once you identify as a leadership team and restructure your, let's say, recruitment, you can begin to catch the people that you're potentially filtering out through those unconsciously. The next challenge, I, I guess, is then if you have a culture and a team of, you know, let's say 20, 30 extroverts of a certain type who you've, you've cultivated and hired up until that point, actually introducing personality types let's say of a different sort is bound to cause some challenges i would imagine and again i'd I'd be really interested how you managed that so that you created one team and not two teams under one banner firstly with difficulty but secondly because everyone was aligned by values it's a lot easier when you have people who care about their teams people who care about their team members people who are willing to go out of their way to coach team members, you stand a much better chance of actually harmonizing any such differences as you grow and scale. So again, you see the anchor is the culture, the anchor is the values. You've got a set of hugely ambitious people, aspirational people, but people who are humble, people who are like-minded, people who will go the extra length for their team members. So there was a lot of internal coaching. Now to balance this out, let me also say that sometimes you need to almost coach an extrovert as well to come sometimes to the middle. It really depends on the situation. It depends on the client context. And again, it also depends on the personality of the client team you're working with. Yeah. You need to make sure you're harmonizing in that team. You're working well with that team. You can't always be coming in at an extreme and and not being able to understand how the client team learns, listens, shares, collaborates, challenges. So yes, you're bringing a very strong Boxwood culture, but part of our differentiator was we'll bring this in, but at the same time, we'll really understand what works for you as a client. So you need to be harmonizing at so many different levels, at the client team level, the senior stakeholders at 
at a client can have their own personalities, their own ways of working, etc. So this is an ongoing thing. It almost needs to be rhythm, ritual, and routine. These are things that should just be happening naturally. And you just need to keep pulling and pushing some levers to make sure you're nurturing it as a leadership team and it continues to happen. So I, I want to pick up on on the phrase you just used. So rhythm, ritual, and routine sounds like a, a phrase that you have used as part of your lexicon and building culture. And I just really like the words used and I think the meaning, but it'd be great to just hold on that and, and find out what that means and if that was part of how you kept the culture growing and developing at Boxwood. It most certainly was. It most certainly was. And and we spent a lot of time talking about how we're going to build the company, but more importantly, continue to build it and scale it. And this is one of the big scale issues that I currently work with, with a number of companies mm. in the market who are asking, how do we scale, but how do we retain our culture? How do we retain what differentiates us? And we used to call it the way we work. And we were very explicit about how we work together as a team, as individuals, as individuals coming from different backgrounds, how we work on client side. We were very explicit about, without being a dictatorship, we were very explicit about the do's and don'ts on client side, the behaviors, etc. And all of this was actually part of rituals, rhythms, routines, just like someone practicing for the Olympics, you know, you have your rituals and your routines, the things you do systematically all the time, which makes you, which helps continuous improvement, which helps actually improving your own standards, your own client facing standards all the time. So not only in those days, it was called continuous improvement for clients, you know, not only did you practice it externally, you were also actually living it internally. And that's where the rituals, rhythms and routines were so important. It was about conditioning ourselves. And you mentioned there around the, it wasn't a dictatorship, but you sort of trailed off there, I understand. Is I just want to be clear, mainly for people listening on, on actually that implementation side. And we'll, we'll move on shortly because I know there's so much more in the, the Boxwood journey to discuss. But in terms of actually defining, like you say, being quite strict on the do's and don'ts, am I right in interpreting that that was very much around modeling behavior as leaders and demonstrating what was right and wrong, as opposed to what you know, the, the cliched 250-page HR manual that says, do your timesheets, don't do this, do that, don't do this. Am I right it was the former of modeling, not the latter of codifying, or was it a mix of both? It has to be a mix of both. Okay. It has to be. And and I think most people would say, no, you don't really need need to write it down. Further down the line, as you grow, as you've scaled, as you, you know, there's enough of throughput and 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 a critical mass. There's enough understanding in the group for there to be a critical mass, and for there to be a consistent understanding of do's and don'ts, and what do we aspire to become, and what journey are we all on. We're a learning organization. It's all about continuous growing, learning, improvement, both internally at an individual level, at a team level, at a company level, and then, of course, importantly, at a client level. So when you're starting out, and the advice I would give to people starting out, it is useful 
to write it down. One for yourself. It's really useful because things become real when you write them down and you're able to revisit them and you don't just cook up stuff in, in your head as you go along. You, 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 you're able to refine it once you write it down. Once you've written it down, you can collaborate with your co-founders, your colleagues, the first few joiners, ask them what they think. So you're not saying, I'm going to write it down and that's it. What you're saying is, I've actually taken the time to write it down. This is what I believe we all are thinking, but please put in your input. Because even when you work with clients, you want everyone's handprints to be on the solution. You don't yeah. want to be sitting in a dark room developing a solution which people haven't bought into or people haven't contributed to whilst it was in its development phase. So I do think you need to write it down. Mm especially at that early stage, because then you can refine it, develop it, share it mm. and collaborate using it and use it as not as an instrument, but really to drive dialogue and understanding. So that I think brings us quite nicely to, to something you mentioned earlier and something I said I'd come back to. And that's actually how in the early days how you begin to define that culture. And obviously I'm not suggesting that you can define how the whole world will look, but defining some of those, I guess you might call them rules of engagement with, as it was in your case, co-founders. And you mentioned there you, you would work with and advise other consulting firms is if someone listening to this is either just starting their firm, looking to start a firm, how do you define what those cultural, let's say you mentioned values, values are, and do so in a way that is tangible and lived as opposed to what you sometimes see, particularly in large corporates, where, as one of my previous guests, Don Morehouse said, they are just bland phrases over a photocopier. Someone's put, you know, they've put all the different buzzwords, but actually they don't mean anything to the firm. How do you ensure that you can define what works for the firm and then instill that in you and your team so you actually live it? So going back to what we were discussing earlier, is once you know what it is and you know what it is is when you set out to so we set out and we we said we want to be truly differentiated with regards to one delivering tangible real bottom line results for our clients mm. further down the line top line results as well we want clients to look at us and say these are the people who can deliver real value. They're not here to just deliver improvement in the PL, which we were definitely there to do from a results focus, but they're also here and they will take the time to transfer knowledge and capability to our client teams. So when we set out initially, we were very clear about these things. We only exist for our clients. All our projects must deliver real tangible value. Value you can count in a PL, both in the form of top line and bottom line growth. And once you've set those things down and you say we will be differentiated in the fact that we will never, never, never use consulting jargon to confuse clients. Yeah. We will never use consulting jargon or MBA speak further down the line to intimidate clients mm. or their teams. 
you know, those were, we were very clear about these things. And once you're very clear about these things and you know how, you, you know, it was about plain speaking. Mm. We're going to be plain speaking. We're going to write clearly, succinctly, but using very simple, clearly understood language. Because when you're working all the way from the boardroom to the shop floor, that's important. Yeah. And, and a lot of this, you can get lost in consulting terminology and jargon. We were very clear about these things. So once we set it up, it was more about nurturing it, it was more about people who were more natural, uh, recruiting people who were more naturally leaning in this, on this end of the spectrum. But the advice I would give to anyone who's starting out or anyone who's thinking about scaling is everyone talks about culture, but you need to be willing to invest two key ingredients in making it happen, making it real and making it sustainable. And the first key ingredient is time. You need to be able to invest time as a company, as a leadership team, as individual teams to discuss this stuff, take time out to actually sit down late in the evening, maybe over beer and pizza, to mm -hmm. have these discussions and uh, you know, talk about lessons learned where culture is concerned. And the other thing is investment and money and not time investment, but being able to fund events, get togethers, pizza evenings, travel of consultants who are working all over the country, possibly mm. abroad, to get together and have this discussion and dialogue and create an ecosystem and an environment where it's an enabling environment where you're actually encouraging subliminally these type of discussions to happen. It's a learning organization. We're here to learn. We're here to grow and then take that learning to our clients. But those are two things you must invest in making mm. culture happen is both time and money. It doesn't just happen. And of course, then there's a lot of leadership. Yeah, really, really useful advice. And it brings us quite nicely on to the point around scaling up, because you've mentioned a, a few times that the tensions around sustaining your culture. And we've, we've talked a lot on the culture side. There's obviously also the, you, there's probably a better word for it, but the sort of the, the money side of actually building financially a stable business. And all the while, like you say, being conscious and cognizant of how that scale impacts your your culture, but equally how you keep the lights on, how you get the right number of people in. Am I right that you held quite a, what I would call quite a unique role of you were very focused on the people side, but you were also very focused on the numbers side. You, know, you mentioned your MBA, your banking background. So you almost wore those, you saw what is quite often, I would say, they actually tend to have quite a tension between the how do we do better for our people how do we do better for our, our numbers? It'd be great to actually understand how, how maybe you managed that tension and, and what challenges you found on that journey for growth. The first thing I would say, there was always a natural tension mm. because I was responsible for everything to do with people and finance. So I used to joke about it, but I really did mean it. I was responsible for two most important things at the company, our people, and our cash. <laughs> but what it really enabled us to do as a company and the leadership team was incredibly supportive of this, Nick, was 
because I was taking care of both finance and people, I could also understand how that would impact the business model, uh, operating model, how growth would impact us. And the, the one thing I will take away, and people think growth is great, and growth is great. However, growth is incredibly expensive. It is always expensive. You always burn cash before you earn cash. And there's always a much longer lag between burning cash and earning cash. Because where consulting is concerned, your most of your expenditure will be on the people side of things. The infrastructure which supports that people, the offices, the IT, the technology these days, the travel, all of that. And then, of course, what I said earlier was the amount you invest in establishing the right culture, nurturing the right culture, the rituals, routines, events, all of that costs money. So growth is expensive. We always relied on organic growth at Boxwood. We funded our own growth, which is even more painful because you are purely reliant on, on your own cash flow for growth purposes. And as you're growing, especially during years where we were doing anywhere between 20 to 40% growth. We went in the early years, there were years where, you know, 20, 40% growth was feasible, but you were almost doubling the size of a company in a single year. And if not doubling, you were growing by a third in some years, which would put immense pressure on the entire infrastructure of the company, knowledge sharing, inducting, resourcing, making sure you were setting new joiners up for success, making sure that your rituals and routines for induction, making sure you're bringing in people and you're bringing in people and they're experiencing an induction journey that they should experience and you've actually promised them. All those things come under pressure when you're growing at 30%. Were there within that, looking back any particular inflection points so with a growth rate like that as you said some years you doubled some years you added another third to the firm were there any specific i say inflection points because it could be anything that caused that but any specific changes in size or changes in the firm that led to you having to rethink like you say that operating model and maybe this is something you advise firms you you know you that you talk to on is what are those telltale signs? Is it when you get to 10, you need to do something different? Is it when you get to three industries? What, what did you find with Boxwood were the those key points that led to you having to fundamentally change the business? Now, this varies for different companies. It really varies for, for everyone's in a slightly different context and situation. It depends on how global you are, how UK-centric you are, it depends on how geographically dispersed you are. It also comes down to there are a few companies out there who now very effectively communicate using technology, Google meetups, all sorts of different things are available today. They weren't 15 years ago. You didn't have FaceTime and WhatsApp and Google Meets mm. for free and all sorts of stuff that you have access to now. Uh, the key is... You don't stop doing what you're doing as you scale. You just start doing it differently. And it's important. So there's some key hygiene factors that you must actually continue doing when nurturing cultures 
what what one of the most important things that consultants value and this is about career enhancement and this is about coaching and mentoring and growing one of the most important things consultants value is time with their engagement manager time with the engagement leader time with one of the leadership team right and that's one of the first things which gets pinched during times of exponential growth and you just then have to at that point once you recognize that that is happening and i'm using that one example of time where consultants new joiners existing consultants who want to grow who want to be promoted who want to develop certain expertise they really value time with leadership and once that starts getting pinched you're in trouble and you must recognize that quickly now some companies once they scale they just have to ask themselves well we what did we do that event for are we too large now to have that type of event we can't have restaurant bookings which take so many people anymore and these are real by yeah. the way it's we, it's funny because these are some of the real challenges sometimes the venues you used to use are now too small for you uh, others won't accommodate a certain size of team uh etc so you just need to ask yourself how do we do the same but differently how do we use other avenues other channels other forms of infrastructure some forms of technology etc to achieve the same outcome that we were achieving previously i'll give you an example uh, some companies and we used to do a lot of this was friday lunch stops anyone who was going to be in and around the office because we've all consultants were client facing and always on client side sometimes fridays they would drop in to confer with their colleagues other capability teams share knowledge learn crack some of the problems but we used to have friday lunch stop but then there comes a time when not everyone can attend friday lunch stop and you become too big and too large to be having a friday lunch stop and you just need to ask yourself right what happens how do you support those people who are not in the country can't make or not in london can't make it to lunch stop and what are some of the other events that you can actually hold to support that type of knowledge sharing camaraderie time together you just have to think creatively and achieve the same outcomes doing different things but you mustn't stop doing what you were trying to do in the first place to nurture those rituals and routines. No, it's a really good point and and like you say I think technology has only made it easier where we are now. So I I'm based outside of London now and while I come in for interviews, podcast interviews like this, meetings, actually the the ability to jump on a Skype call or a FaceTime with someone it just makes life so much easier. So we've talked actually about there the scaling up challenges and some of particularly on the people side i think it'd be really good to turn to that that point in the journey and again i if i've got this wrong something is actually that time when you'd got to a scale where you thought right we can we can go on a journey to sell if that's what we want to do and maybe you can start there is when or at what point in in boxwood's growth did you and the the founding team decide we could be looking at something here to sell and how did you having decided that get the firm into a position where you could then ultimately look for someone to acquire or someone to partner with 
So I have a slightly different philosophy where building to sell is concerned. Go on. And my philosophy always has been, you build something exceptional, differentiated, and people will be interested. Companies will be interested. Clients will actually speak highly about you. They'll recommend you. Large firms will lose business to you consistently. A lot of people ask me, how do you get sold? I said, just make sure large <laughs> firms consistently lose business to you and lose clients to you and lose large programs to you. That's a sure shot bet at actually creating a market for yourself. So my philosophy is build a great firm with differentiated values, with the clear propositions, with the right people. Because at the end of the day, when a buyer is interested, yes, credentials, approach and method and methodology are really important. Reputation is important. But at the end of the day, they're also buying the, the most important asset of your company, which are your people. Make sure you have the right set of people within the company. So do the right things where proposition is concerned, where clients are concerned, where marketing is concerned. You must, must be able to speak about what you do in, in a clear manner. And you must be able to uh, take that to market and it should be fully well understood. We had quite a tricky proposition. We set out... We were one of the few firms in the country who could do large-scale, holistic, knotty, cross-cutting transformation programs where you would work with senior leadership teams, typically come in at the CEO level or at the board level and work on their top three key strategic agenda items, either preparing companies for exit or sale. They may have been owned by PE or companies simply wanting to, to grow their top lines and transform based on their operating environment and what was happening in the market. So we set up many, many, many years ago to do something quite complex and hairy, which was quite unusual now 15 years ago. Um, a small, mid-sized, not even mid-sized in those days firm going to market and speaking to CEOs and their team saying, we can help you double your top line, triple your bottom line, and this is how we're going to go about doing it. It was quite audacious. Yeah. And um, yes, we'd get laughed out of the room initially because we were young. Uh, as a firm, we were young. We were relatively unknown. We didn't have huge consulting networks because very few of the senior leadership team came from a consulting background. But slowly, based on the bottom line results that the company delivered, we built a reputation for ourselves. Mm. And boardrooms started inviting us in and wanting us not to just focus on the bottom line, but also help them with growth and growth propositions. So really, how do you set yourself up? Uh, one, you have to do exceptional work for your clients. Uh, the, the clients should be your biggest fans. And when your clients speak highly of you to other firms, other firms get upset and then they typically want to buy you. <laughs> uh, people, make this, people make this sound really complicated. I think the only complicated bit about this is how to make this happen over time consistently. Yeah. But it's a very simple formula. 
So I, I do I I do want to come on to that how you make it happen because like you say that that's the the hard part. But something you mentioned there and you've mentioned a few times as part of what I would call the, the boxwood differentiator is your focus on helping CEOs grow bottom line, then top line. And something that I would be really interested to understand is actually how you tracked the benefits of what you delivered. Because I think very often, particularly in the larger transformational change, if you're replatforming an IT system, the budget for the program could be into the hundreds of millions. It could be a multi-year program. And very often you will see consulting firms, particularly when I think of the, the mid-market, and you look at their, their credentials and it's it's all great. They delivered lots of good work in, and that's what they say on their website. But you rarely see people say, we did this project and delivered a five times return on investment and you know, the client has gone on to make X more since. How did you actually track that element? And then, in fact, let's start there. We'll come on to actually how you then position that with clients afterwards. But how did you ultimately track that so that you could credibly say to a CEO, look, I worked with this guy. We increased the bottom line by X. We cost Y. That's why you should hire us. So because 15 years ago, and I'm not just talking about us as Boxwood, but even other firms, because firms were typically working in operating environments, you would actually commit in your contract. First, you would understand the problem, and then you would commit to efficiencies and savings that those efficiencies would deliver. And they would form part of our contracts with the client and letters of agreement. So it was actually in a contract. We will work with X team, this is how we will go about working with them. This is the knowledge and capability we will transfer to them on that journey in terms of training. We will provide them whilst we work with them. And I'm talking about working in underground tunnels and airport runways and factory shop floors and supermarket shop floors. But when you're working to that level of detail in an operational environment, you're delivering efficiencies those efficiencies can easily be extrapolated into savings in terms of time that they're saving, in terms of how you're improving in those days a process, an end-to-end -end process. How does an olive make its way from the farm to the supermarket shelf? You can actually, and it was one of the most famous case studies ever, how does the olive make it to the supermarket shelf and you can map every single step of that process and you can map exactly how much every step costs the producer the supplier the distributor the supermarket chain etc the logistics the warehousing you can cost each and every single aspect of that and that's how you can actually commit to delivering certain percentages of savings and quantify those along the line and I think some of that is now being lost in the market within which we operate today because of size and scale and big enterprise platforms. And I think it would almost benefit clients to revert back to that ever so slightly and really ask for commitments from consultancies. So what value are you going to deliver? How tangible is that value going to be? How are you going to make it sustainable? So once you leave, how will our teams actually continue to deliver that, that value? 
And you can also do it in large transformations because you're talking about committing to real growth figures. If you're working with a client, and some strategy firms won't like hearing this, but when, when you're committing to working on a growth project in a certain market, you can commit to numbers and you can commit to percentage improvements and increases. And I remember we once got a, we used to work on some risk and reward with our clients. And we once had a client pay us a reward bonus a year after we had left the project because we had committed to sustainable results. We had committed to specific milestones having been achieved and delivering real results. And the, those would be calculated in next year's BNL. And that's how much, and that's also why firms were interested in us, Nick, was because we used to commit to delivering tangible, sustainable results. And clients used to be willing to pay us bonuses a year after we had left the program and weren't on site anymore. And full bonuses, no, you know, no arguments, nothing. Yes, we've we've exceeded the numbers. We've paid our team the bonus. Why would we not pay you the bonus? And that's just one example of how we were perceived in the market. And I think anyone who's looking to sell, to build, and then to sell. You know, this is the type of reputation you need to achieve for yourself in the market. And clients should be able to speak to potential buyers and say, I really recommend these people. And it was going to be a question of mine, and you, you've answered around the risk and reward, because that is a challenge I think is sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly leveled at at the consulting industry of there is sometimes a disconnect between what you pay for and what you receive. And actually, to, to your point, being able to go in with a a risk reward proposal that gives both sides upside if it works, but equally lets the client penalize you if it, it doesn't. From what you're saying, and you know, you know more firms who are in the thick of this than I do, actually the that is quite compelling in a world where we've moved much more towards with big scale change, the perception that's harder. But like you say, if I guess it comes down to how you structure that offer, how you think about it and, and what those risk reward mechanisms are. I want to come back to the conversation just before though on on that that growth because you, you you made the good point that be great at what you do and that's how you get to success but actually there is a sort of side story that is much harder to achieve of building that in sustainably and you mentioned things around for instance getting all your team to understand the mission understand your value proposition being very clear on what you provide to clients and to me that makes me jump, and this might be wrong, to almost that codifying and ensuring that there is enough structure and rigor in place. Because I think if you read the headlines on building to sell, and I appreciate what you're saying about this isn't your space, but if you read the sort of Silicon Valley literature, it's all, make sure it's all in standard operating procedures, make sure you've got everything codified. And I'd be interested in your take on that journey of how you, you obviously delivered work, so it was great and people wanted to buy you. But I assume there was also a, a structuring point such that when an acquirer comes looking, they don't see a, a mess of people just you know running around putting out fires. <laughs> um, or maybe they did. I, again, I, I don't know. How did you, you formalize the business such that when an acquirer did come or you went seeking, they took a look at it and said, yes, we have a, a structured approach. We have a, a business that can work here on its own. It's interesting because sometimes... And I'm not just talking about us as a company, but I'm seeing a lot of this is 
companies convince themselves of all sorts of stuff which they believe is important to, important to buyers. Uh, different things are important to different buyers. Mm. And, and that's important to recognize on this journey. What are you building and what's going to be appealing? What are the things most consultants think are appealing that aren't and vice versa? What did you find are? Are the things that are appealing that maybe you, you didn't think of? Well, one of the things is an example is international growth. Okay. International offices. And this comes up a lot. Some acquirers will not be interested in you having offices in New York, Sydney, Dubai, Riyadh, Cairo, elsewhere. They're, they're just not interested in that. What they're interested in is... And I'm using this as an example. They're sure. interested in your UK business because the budget that they have to make the acquisition is a UK budget. And what they're trying to do is enhance their UK proposition and their UK numbers. So the fact that you have all these international offices makes it hugely convoluted for them mm. and complicated because then they need global alignment and they need global offices to embrace your local offices in Sydney and New York and Dubai, etc. And imagine trying to achieve that unless, of course, you're doing a massive, massive acquisition and, and colliding two massive companies together. So that's just a an example of do you be also because with international offices, Come a lot of international contingent liabilities, liabilities you can't necessarily put a number down for. Then that's why they're contingent. You, for you to really fathom that risk and 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 feed those numbers into your valuation is is incredibly difficult from a buyer's perspective. From a seller's perspective, it's all all should be upside and higher value because you've got international growth and international presence. So international is good when there's a big international merger happening or big international acquisition. But it's not for a lot of buyers will be turned away from that. So when you're building and you can do a lot of international work without having set up international offices. Mm. Boxwood had one office in the UK, but there were times where 40% of our portfolio was international. We had people working in uh, South Africa, in Australia, in wherever you can think of, in the US, in Canada, we, you know, but these were consulting engagements that you contracted out of the UK with international clients or with clients based out of the UK who had international operations. So you have to really think about what type of buyer, you have to almost run a study, who would find you appealing and what type of company would you be complimentary for? So either someone's taking you on because you're supplementary to what they have and they need to scale quickly and they need more capacity, they need more depth and they need more of the same capability. So they're looking at a supplementary acquisition or they're looking for a complementary set of skills in, in, in capability. So Boxwood was very complimentary in terms of what we did because not too many firms out there did what we did in holistic transformations in the manner in which we did it in the manner in which we sold those transformation engagements to directly to CEOs and board level execs. So you really need to think about 
that journey in terms of who would find us appealing. But simply put, people who typically lose business to you, big firms who lose business to you over the years will find you appealing. Um, so the international one, I think, is a, a fascinating example of actually a, a something that isn't a value and, and quite counterintuitive. I think I'm sure many listeners, as I would have, have thought, if you're growing internationally, that shows growth. Growth is good. Growth is bigger multiple. Growth is bigger sale price. But like you say, conversely, actually, that that creates potential liabilities and puts buyers off. What from either your experience with Boxwood or, or the firms you advise, are there any things that sit on the other side of that dichotomy? Be it, and what I mean by that is things that maybe a consulting entrepreneurs not thinking about right now, but actually are of huge value to a certain subset of acquirers, let's say. If you think about what's happening in the market now in the last couple of years, pretty much every consulting firm in the country is trying to build digital capability yeah every single firm in the country so for people who are thinking two three four five years and sale processes always take longer than you anticipate if you think you're going to be ready in three years you'll probably be ready in five unless you're incredibly lucky and all your stars align everything's moving in the right direction so always look at four or five years where your propositions are concerned and how the market is changing and the direction in which the market is moving. A couple of years ago, two, three, four, five years ago, data science, data scientists, people who understood artificial intelligence, machine learning, working with colossal data sets, applying artificial intelligence, machine learning models to those data sets and providing value. That type of stuff didn't exist. Or if it did, it was called something different. And firms didn't readily have that capability. So it's just important to look out, further out, and look at where the market's moving and start building some of those capability sets sooner in your life cycle, even though you may find it incredibly uncomfortable. Because once you've had that three-year runway, four-year runway to build that capability, mm. you will be quite appealing to the larger firms. And it's straightforward from that, from a demand supply perspective. Mm. What do you think is going to be in huge demand three, four, five years down the line? From a customer perspective, what are clients going to be crying out for? Requesting consulting firms to provide a couple, not today, not what they're asking for today, but what are they going to be asking for in three years from now? So as you build to grow, those are some aspects you need to consider when you think about building your own capability. Of course, going back to your earlier question, you have to have your house in order. You can't claim to be a consultant uh, doing millions of pounds in consulting or dollars in consulting revenue, working for FTSE 100 organizations and helping them when you don't have your own house in order. So in terms of capturing knowledge, and this is a key one, especially where scaling is concerned and discussion I have ongoing with a number of consultancies at the moment. How do you scale? How do you capture knowledge? How do you share knowledge as whilst you're scaling and growing rapidly within an organization? How do you make sure your team's up to pace with sharing knowledge you can only share if you're effectively and efficiently capturing that knowledge yeah, and making sense of it 
and capturing it and sharing it in a manner in which it is readily understood, is easily shareable, is easily accessible, and importantly, easily applicable to client situations and contexts. So those things, what I call the hygiene factors, and you have to invest both time and money again in making those things happen, you need to make sure your organizational construct, your ways of working, the ecosystem that you create is actually continuously nurturing that to happen almost uh, subconsciously. And it doesn't happen subconsciously. You need to make a hugely conscious effort to make those things happen. The knowledge share, the knowledge capture, because buyers will be really interested in that. Your mm -hmm. case studies, your credentials, how you've actually built and documented your approach and method over the years. Because in addition to the people that they're getting as part of the acquisition, your approach and methodology and how that's differentiated. And the differentiation can also be in how it's applied as opposed to what just the method is. And that's where the people come in. But those are the things you need to have down pat. But I call those hygiene factors. But of course, as we know, it's, it's difficult to maintain that level of hygiene. Well, and like you say, with rapid growth, I think it brings a lot of challenges around, like you say, maintaining those hygiene factors. I think it brings us quite nicely, though, and I'd be keen to spend some time on this topic for both my interest, but equally because I've had listeners who have specifically said to me, Nick, you've had some great consulting entrepreneurs on who have sold businesses, and we we hear a lot about growth in the, the early days, but a lot less about the exit of how did a and characterize this, but I just sort of think of, you always see it on telly, don't you? Someone shakes hands, they pop some champagne, and, and, and that's the acquisition done. And I'm sure that is as far away from the real world as it, it, as it could possibly get. So it'd be great to actually really dig in as much as you can share. I appreciate some of this may be confidential, but as much as you can share on that acquisition process and start where you, where you think best. But ultimately, Boxwood was acquired by KPMG. Maybe we start with, how did how did the conversation with KPMG start and how did that negotiation and ultimate sale take place? So any buying conversation is about a potential buyer approaching you either through an agent or approaching you directly. And when people are looking to sell, they typically go and engage the equivalent of a small investment bank who's willing to represent you. And there are a few really good ones in the UK at the moment or they go and find an individual who's got this background, corporate finance background, advisory background, uh, could have been a management consultant before, has been through that process before, who can advise you on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Just, just to hold there, you mentioned some banks are really good. This, I know you're not getting a commission for it, but if someone was listening, who would you recommend approaching in that respect? Equitech. Equitech are pretty much leaders in the consulting market, especially in the UK. Um, I have high regard for them. They do a cracking job and they understand the process. They understand the political, the emotional and the rational aspects of doing a deal. And they've done it several times over. I have to say we did our own. We didn't we, purely because we had the capability in-house. I come from an investment banking background. I had a fantastic, fantastic uh, non-exec director on our board who 
had all the capability what that I didn't have and I could rely on. So between the two of us and then, of course, the rest of the leadership team, uh, we were able to structure the deal ourselves and not have to go externally. So you don't always have to go externally and spend a lot of money. But if you don't have the capability in-house, then I strongly recommend that you do go externally and find the right company to represent you or right individual. It doesn't have to be a company. So we did it ourselves. We, thanks to uh, Malcolm Fallon, who was on our board, we had a house in order, Nick. It's so much easier when you have your house in order. So once we had the initial dialogue with the buyers. And did you, just to to check my understanding now, Adult, did you go out to a number of buyers or did you say, we've done our analysis, we think KPMG would want to buy us, let's engage them and only them? How did you approach that? We were in the sweetest spot uh, possible. <laughs> we never went to market. Okay. Ever. We never went to market saying we want to be sold. So this was all inbound? People this was coming all to you. inbound. There were a number of companies on acquisition sprees. They could see the opportunity in the market. They could see that we were one of the few mid-sized differentiated firms with a transformation proposition doing actual transformation work. So we were quite fortunate in that respect. Of course, we made it happen by doing all the right things, but we didn't go marketing ourselves. So we were approached. We were almost introduced to KPMG. In fact, we were a gentleman approached us. He was walk, working on behalf of KPMG. Uh, and then we started discussing, having our discussions with KPMG uh, directly. And initially, it's like any other initial meetings you're understanding cultural fit, you're understanding compatibility, you're understanding the growth opportunity. Where's the potential here? You're trying to figure out synergies. So, and it's interesting because the buyer and of course the seller asking very different questions, very different questions. For us, the most important thing was, will you take care of our people as well as we do? Will you provide them enhanced career prospects? Will you be promoting them fast at a faster rate at which we can afford to do ourselves? Will you be giving them international the possibility to go work internationally at your international offices? You know, those were the type of questions we were asking, and quite understandably, because people were, you know, it was one big family mm. who took care of each other, and we for us, the cultural fit was very important in terms of, and this is an area a lot of sellers underestimate a lot of the time, and a lot of buyers underestimate. Are our cultures compatible? You know, they all look at P&Ls and cash flows and spreadsheets and pipelines and how many clients and who those clients are and how much revenue they provide. And, you know, they look at all that stuff. But you almost, and for years and years and years, and this happens so often, is the cultural compatibility shouldn't be overlooked. So this is one of the things that you must, must look at. In addition to the complementary synergies that you're going to deliver and the complementary skill sets and all of that. But once you get into that discussion, then, of course, you, you need a virtual data room. And you need to be providing a lot of information. It was quite daunting, I have to say, because KPMG is a world-renowned expert in due diligence. And 
they're the running a due diligence exercise on us. And there was myself and Chris, of course, RMD, and uh, a fellow colleague in mm. our data room. That was a fascinating experience. <laughs> well, and, and we might dig into that. I, I want to pick up on the bit you, you just talked about, because that, that really hit me, because I think, again, in a lot of acquisition, if you like, as you see it on LinkedIn and on social media nowadays, and particularly focused around technology, is you hear about, you hear about the numbers. So, you know, this is acquired in, in Silicon Valley. It's all in billions, isn't it? So, you know, this was acquired for one billion, two billion. And people focus very much on the, the financial side and the founders you know, going off into the sunset. But to your point there, actually, don't think about that, the cultural side. And now I'm just thinking, I can't recall the company's names, but I, I have heard of times where particularly say, so pharmaceuticals, I think is quite prevalent for this, where a drug company might buy a drug just to kill it. So if there's a new drug coming and one of the big ones says, we're not sure, they'll buy it, kill it, shelve it. So actually structuring parts of the acquisition contract so that the buyer has certain things to fulfill. So you must, I don't know, give certain marketing budget for this drug, let's say. Bringing that back to consulting and the point you raised, did that cultural fit form part of the purchase agreement? Does that, you know, you mentioned about making sure your people were, uh, had progression opportunities, had international opportunities. Is that something that formed part of the contractual discussion? And, and just stop me if we can't talk about this. And if so, how does one build that in? Because like I say, I think a lot of people listening probably think, oh, it's you know, a multiple of EBITDA, we shake hands and we go home. But there's so many complexities around people. How, do you, how did you ensure that your people had that piece of the deal to, I guess, protect them from, like you say, a big company and either intentionally or not, just absorbing them into the machine? Really spot on. Um, you know, the way we work with clients is we almost run the movie. So once we land on client side, what will the first three months look like? And we almost run that movie in a week ourselves, okay. working as a team, almost working that through. So what the project, will, what the 12 weeks or Absolutely. six months will look like in one week? Got Absolutely correct. So we, we run that. We used to do that internally. The way the market would understand this is you almost have to design the post-merger integration or the post-acquisition integration and run it. Agree on the principles up front. Agree on the principles because if you haven't agreed on the principles, there's no point in discussing details and semantics about numbers and promotions and pay rises and all of that. Agree the principles. What are we here to achieve? What are we going to try and achieve by actually going through this acquisition. Agree the principles. Once you've agreed the principles, you can then almost design your post merger integration. What are we going to integrate and what are we not? I have to say, KPMG were excellent in everything they committed to us, both in terms of principle and then subsequent execution, because a lot of times, great plans get lost in execution. Mm -hmm. And the first couple of years, they committed to ring fencing the business, keeping it completely separate as an internal business unit in itself. And those are the things we collectively felt would really benefit driving results for the acquisition. Keep it as a ring fenced entity, only collapse and and integrate what is absolutely necessary. And I have to say KPMG were fantastic in, in, in actually 
agreeing to those principles, supporting those principles, and then supporting us in implementing that post-merger integration plan. You know, Boxwood continued to run there for, as an example, Boxwood was running their own recruitment independent of KPMG for several years after the acquisition. And I, you know, KPMG stuck true to the principles they had agreed to and the implementation plan. So you almost have to run the post-merger integration plan, design it, the key principles and the stuff that you will be doing, and then ask yourself, does this make sense? Do a validation, do a check. And we'll come back to, because I do want to cap off the merger and the acquisition process with actually the the how you get to a, and it might not be as simple as this, but how you get to an ultimate figure. But something that has occurred to me from what you've said there and around KPMG and yourselves obviously came up with the principles and they honoured them and, and that worked very well. For the people in your team, how did you manage a potential? And I, I just say this from, again, it's it's a cliched view, but I've had a number of guests who have left the big four to start smaller firms. And for them, the big four, or KPMG in this in this instance, and the, the SME sector are extremely different. And a number, I mean, you will know this as well, a number of firms in our space actively recruit big four consultants with the offer of not being a big four. I'm sure on some people's marketing, I've literally seen we are not the big four as a differentiator. Was that ever a challenge for yourselves? Because if you're growing a small to medium-sized consultancy, people potentially have joined for that family, as you called it, and now you're offering the proposition of becoming part of a, a bigger entity. How did you manage, if there was a challenge and tension, how did you manage that with your team? So before I answer that question, this thing about recruiting from the big four, et cetera. It was mm. quite interesting because when we set up Boxwood and grew Boxwood, we said we would not recruit consultants. Okay. So, so maybe less than you. Yeah. And, and a lot of people are shocked when they hear this. What do you mean you grew a consultancy, but you didn't recruit consultants? And typically people recruit from the big four because these are people who have grown up in the big four, they've been trained by the big four, they understand how to approach, shape, design, implement consulting engagements, they understand the language. They're trained, fully trained consultants who can land on their feet running. And that's why typically SMEs recruit from the big four. Of course, there's pros and cons of recruiting from big firms because if you're a small firm and you don't have the infrastructure, it's, it's tricky for people who are coming from from a place where they have a lot of infrastructure support. You have to do pretty much everything by yourselves in the smaller firms. And th that's where it gets tricky. But we set out, and this was one of our key differentiators for many, many years, Nick, we only recruited from industry because people were bringing industry experience. We had a grown-up proposition, an experienced proposition, and we would only have experienced teams working with clients at a peer-to-peer -peer level. I've run a factory before, you're running a factory, we can speak at a peer-to-peer -peer level. I can challenge you, I can share my experiences with you, and we can have this sparring session. And that was actually one of the differentiators for Boxwood. You could have these sparring sessions with clients on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. Now, how does it work? A lot of very large firms have subcultures and mini cultures within them. Different teams have different personalities. Yeah. So is it workable? Yes, it is. Can different teams, can a corporate finance team have a very different personality to 
a specific sector team, a deals team, a public sector team, an integration team, a marketing team. Uh, yes, they can. You know, they all have their different teams. Personalities are created by individuals, which then become a melting pot. And the team is usually a reflection of a collection of those personalities. So is it possible to acquire a smaller firm and almost create a business unit out of them in a much larger consultancy, global consultancy with thousands of people? It is possible. Is it tricky and is it sensitive? Yes. You need to really consciously do certain things along the process. And you, you can't take your eyes off those things for it to be continuously sustainable and successful. And to that point, and I, I'm very conscious that we're coming to the end of our time together, so I, I, maybe we'll do a round two. I think sure we're going to probably have to do <laughs> one on exits. And I think, and I think, as I say, from, from what my listeners are asking for, I think they would love that. I think just to that piece, because like you say, we don't have time to cover all of the nuances. In your approach, did you, and to the firms you advise, is that something that you as a, a founder, owner, if you like, should be going in eyes open and proactively talking to your team about, like you've just talked about, you know, actually we can coexist, different cultures in big firms is perfectly normal. Is it something that you should really, you only address as the team bring it up? Where do you, do you see for that, say, communication around the acquisition? Should that be very much owner, founder led to their team? Or should they focus more on responding to the needs of their team? I think as an owner and founder, you will always be responding to the needs of your team. If you have set up an organization that you truly care about and which has been a part of your life for many years and you're incredibly proud of, and like I say, typically these SME type organizations are large families mm. and they're fantastic places to work and grow and live and learn. So most owners and founders will be thinking about the needs of their people for mm. the most part. For, of course, they're thinking about shareholding value. Or of course, they're thinking about realizing shareholding value. But importantly, most of them will be thinking about the needs of their people because at the end of the day, one, because they care. Two, because the only way it'll work is because if some of those needs are being met. Because at the end of the day, these are people-based businesses. These are people-based businesses where your assets walk in every day and walk out every day. And mm. on most occasions, they don't even walk in because they're walking into the client <laughs> sites, hopefully. Well, yes, very, yes? very true. Very right? True. So they're w w walking into client sites, sometimes globally, sometimes across the entire country. and But these are assets who can walk in and can also walk out. So when you're structuring a deal as someone who is selling and a buyer, because an intelligent buyer who's thinking forward who's thinking about a long journey, will also be thinking about the needs of your people because that's the only way it'll work, is you structure something which meets those needs. Mm. I'm talking about career progression, international deployment, new capability sectors that they could work in, new sectors, new, you know, all sorts of stuff essentially driven by career progression and of course more and more now well-being yeah uh, well-being flexible working policies all of that are, is more and more important in the consulting environment where people are 
working long and hard days. Oh, completely. And unfortunately, I, I find this happens often as we, we reach a great new topic when we're running towards the end and we've covered a lot of other great topics. And like you say, I think there's a there's definitely a round two on the exit and on the uh, some of those changing faces of the industry. I think to that point, while I, I said we would come to the financial side, I, I think that we won't do that justice today. So I'd rather we, we pause there. And I, I think you've given actually a lot of good advice on, while we haven't talked about the mechanics of a final sale price, the elements that you might want to focus on, which I think will be really valuable. And like I say, I had never thought of the international expansion in the way you had. And it's really, it makes a lot of sense what you said there. So I think I'm sure there'll be others who find that hugely valuable. The last two questions for today, and these are ones that I, I ask all my guests, and I get a whole range of different answers and take these as you want and where you want to. So the first question is about books. So I'm an avid reader. I read a lot of business books, probably too many business books, not enough uh, fiction books. And I'd be really interested to get your take. And please do use this as a guide, not as a definitive rule is. What are the book or books that you have found yourself gifting or recommending to people most? And take that over the course of your journey with Boxwood over the last year. Which books have had the biggest impact on you and the people around you? A book which I actually gift to a lot of my clients these days who are, a number of them are professional services firms who are actually either an NED for or a strategic advisor for is managing professional services firm. The David Meister book, is that? That's correct. That's correct. Because it takes you back to starting principles. Because when you're starting out and thinking about all these things, should my people be selling or should they be delivering? Should there be a combination of both or should delivery people be delivering and sell, uh, BD people selling? No, these are questions which you grapple with on day one and day 5001. Yeah. And you continue to grapple with those questions. And, and this book actually addresses some of those key principles in terms of how you need to go about thinking about those initial fundamental building blocks. It's a fantastic book and I highly recommend it. The other one is Seeing Systems. Of course, Good to Great by Jim Collins. I would highly recommend it. A lot of my coaches have gifted it to me over the years. We tried to apply those principles at Boxwood whilst we were growing and scaling Good to Great. What makes, what differentiates a great company from a good company? And it's got some fantastic examples in why certain firms have excelled over the years and others haven't in the same industry, even though they've been doing the same things. So there's some there's some fantastic learning there. And Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux is a great easy way for people who are not organization design experts or operating model experts to actually try to think broadly about how should I think about my organizational model is a good one and seeing systems uh, just it's on on just type it into google seeing systems i'll put all of these in the show notes so that people can find them and and it's a great one to help you understand both from a client context but also from an internal perspective uh, how some of your people are feeling during growth phases Uh, or not just growth phases, other phases, but how middle managers for the squeezed middle, for example, why are they feeling what they're feeling and 
what can you do to actually address that? It's a fantastic point. Any consulting, seeing systems is, is a fantastic reference. And the one I'm just starting now is, is Start With Why by Simon Sinek, of course. Mm. So this is, I've got a very long list, but these are the ones I would highlight. Fantastic. Well, some great, some great books in there. Some I, I've come across before, some I haven't, and more for my reading list and for, for my listeners as well. So thank you for those. I'll put all of those and links to them in Amazon in the show notes. So if people want to find them, that they can. And then the very last question, and I'm a little cheeky with this because it's, it's three questions in one is you can give one piece of advice to a group of people in front of you. There's three people. The first is someone who's just starting their consulting career. And I tend to aim this question at the junior end, but given your your step into consulting, take it as you wish. So this tends to be people who may be 21, 22, just starting out in the industry. The second is someone who is in what I would call the middle grades in consulting. So they are a senior consultant, a manager grade, let's say, sort of six, four, five, six years. I realize I'm probably being terribly unfair. Four years for a manager is extremely early. And I always mean to correct that. Six to eight, let's say. And then the last one is somebody who is approaching that point where Ownership is an option. And I leave that vague for yourself because that could be someone who is looking to become partner in their firm. Maybe they're looking at that promotion point. Or they could be saying, right, I'm I'm at that point where I could go and do my own thing and create their own consulting firm. But uh, focused on that sort of senior end before an equity position. And like I say, the, the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? For the ones who are just starting out, I'd, I'd encourage them to throw themselves into the deep end and not be afraid of swallowing all that chlorinated water. <laughs> um, but just throw yourself into the deep end. Mm. And if you're joining the right company with the right culture, there'll be enough people there to rescue you and mm. help set you up for success. Of course, if you're willing to throw yourself into the deep end and be willing to take the pain, and with the pain comes the reward, comes the learning, both personal and professional learning. So that's that would be my advice. But make sure you join the right firm. Make sure you understand what works for you. But of course, in those younger years, it's so difficult. So just throw yourself into the deep end and try it out. And you can always leave if it doesn't work or doesn't work for you. So just do it. Is it would be would be my advice for the ones who are just starting out. For the manager grade people, I I'm I've always been a firm believer in playing to your strengths. By the time you reach manager grade, you should be quite cognizant of your key strengths, stuff which really sets you apart. And that is the perfect level, the perfect grade to put together a journey plan, a career plan, which builds and consolidates on those strengths. And of course, that shouldn't prevent you from building what we used to call horizontal competencies, building deeper legs in those competencies whilst you're accumulating knowledge and experience or problem-solving, facilitation, workshopping, etc., etc., etc. But at the manager grade, be clear about what's going to set you apart for the next three to five years and what you will be known for. Really, really important, both in small as well as large organizations. Mm really key. Start asking yourself that question at manager grade. What do people reach out to me for? What am I really good at? What do clients really love me for? And keep building on those strengths because that will really set you up for success. And of course, at that grade, you must also 
start building a strong network of coaches and mentors. And a lot of people say, yes, I have a coach, etc. I used to have several coaches and mentors, and that's what I recommend. Go to different people for different type of coaching and mentorship. And that's a good time to start building your network of sponsors and coaches and mentors. For someone who is about to embark on an ownership or partnership, well, the first thing I'd encourage anyone who is at partner level is not to forget what it was like when they first started the journey. Really, really important for them. And don't forget that in people organizations, it is all about the people. And as we said earlier, the thing they respect most is time with leadership. So these are things they shouldn't forget. But for someone who's about to potentially embark on an equity program, set up independently, etc., make sure you it's starting a consulting firm is no different to any other startup. It's a roller coaster, it's laden with risk, more risk than you could possibly have imagined. It's gonna be a tumultuous volatile emotional journey so be prepared with that and typically at partner level if you have a partner at home you need to make sure they're on that journey with you and they're ready for what's coming absolutely essential for you not to make that decision just independently but make sure everyone at home is on is going to be they realize what you're actually undertaking those would be my tips Brilliant. Well, fantastic advice. I think a really nice way to round off our interview. I wish we had more time because the topic of mentors as you just brought up and how to find them, I know is a, a massive area and something that a lot of people are interested in and actually how we do that. So like I say, I think at some time later this year, it'd be great to get back together, do a round two. We didn't have a chance to talk about your ventures now with LifeFile and what you're doing there, but I will, I'll put links in the show notes to LifeFile to, to yourself so that people can find it. And next time we speak, we can talk a bit more about that and you can tell us what what you're doing now but i think all that's left to say is thank you very much if somebody who's listening to this wants to find out more about you want to pick your brains on anything we've talked about where would you point them to where can they get in touch either my linkedin profile mm-hmm. or just uh, write to me on my blue astral email mm-hmm. which is adel at blueastral.co.uk and feel free to call me more than happy to share whatever I possibly can to set up entrepreneurs up for success. The one piece of advice I would give to people is don't just recruit experience. Please, please give potential a chance because I see a lot of firms focusing on experience, experience, experience. And if you bring in the right people who are smart and sharp and quick and full of pace and energy and ambition, they will come up the curve really quickly. So give potential a chance out there as well, in addition to, of course, bringing in people who are experienced. Well, I think that's a great closing piece of advice and obviously reinforced by your success and that being the approach you and the team took with Boxwood. So thank you very much for sharing all of that, Adil. And all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. 
It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.